Warning, this podcast episode may contain explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a shadow and bone in Grishaverse podcast. If you've been listening, you know that what you can expect from us is spoilers, lots and lots of spoilers for literally everything. No book, no TV show, no novella is safe. If you're listening, you're going to get spoilers. My name is JJ. I'm Kat. And I'm Anjali. And today's topic is Nina Part 2. Today, we will be covering Nina's arc in the King of Scars duology. A note about pronouns similar to what you heard from us in Nina part one. By the end of the duology, it is pretty clear that Hannah is trans, and we learn that Hannah will spend the following decades in a body tailored to look like Fierda's prince. The series ends without a clear name or pronouns for Hannah, and Nina's narration never knowingly refers to Hannah with a new name or pronouns, but given where the series ended, we will refer to Hannah with he, him, or they, them pronouns, and by the name Hannah. So we can go straight into these name fun facts, and do I have something fun for you that I learned three minutes ago? The name Hannah comes from the Hebrew chana, meaning grace, and the name Mila is a Russian name meaning gracious. Oh, that's a great fun fact, JJ. Heck yeah, those Google skills at work. Obviously did not know that when I was reading the books, but I do think that is really neat. I remember us talking about Nina and Matthias's names and do they go together. That's pretty amazing. Very sneaky, Libardugo. I like it. So sneaky. A lot goes on in this duology. Honestly, what happens with Nina could be a standalone book. But yes, at the start of King of Scars, we meet Nina a couple of months after the events of the previous duology. She is deep undercover in Fierda as Mila Yanderstadt, fisherwoman's widow. She's secretly working with a few other Grisha to traffic Fierda and Grisha to safety because they're persecuted in Fierda. And as part of that mission, she eventually ends up meeting Hanna, who is revealed to be the child of Jarl Broom and an eventual love interest for Nina. In the second book, she's living in the Broom household, spying on Jarl Broom and relaying war intelligence back to Ravka. And she's also trying to foment a bit of dissent and love for the Ravkin saints in the heart of the Fjordan people. Okay, so in the beginning of this duology, we first see Nina dragging around Matthias's body. Do we, do we think he really would have cared where he was buried? No, I think that's all Nina. I think she's carrying a lot of guilt and sadness. He was really religious, right? And to him, you had to be buried in order to like go back into the spring, like water or something, right? Because in part of the first duology, he talks about how the Grisha are burned in Theoda so that they cannot be returned. So I think that would have been important to him. I don't know necessarily Mm -hmm. about the precise location except that the water and like the spring water does seem to have a lot of religious significance yeah by the end of the second duology i definitely feel like especially given how chipper he was while he was dying maybe chipper is the wrong word but you know (laughs) relatively like at peace with everything i could definitely have seen him just be like you know nina wherever you are is you know like bury me in ravka like whatever yeah And so, you know, she hears his voice in her head and he talks to her until she buries him. And then she realizes that it was just her because he's dead. But then later she does actually talk to dead people. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question that you're bringing up. And I think the author leaves that up to our interpretation. Yeah, it's funny you bring this up. I have that in my notes. Was she actually talking to Matthias's dead spirit? Three question marks. I did go back and reread some of it where she does like summon spirits voices to speak to her and she can't choose I think specifically who she talks to it's who's willing to talk to her so I thought that that was like an interesting angle 
And much as I would have liked it, I think if Matthias were still in contact with her, just because I loved them as a couple, it makes me think that the real Matthias would not have spoken to her because he would have wanted her to move on and not feel, you know, like she needed to keep thinking about him and what he would have wanted at all times. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah, or all he might have said would be like, just bury the body. Just like, yeah. <laughs> bury the body already. I think he would not have liked her putting herself in danger the way she did to bury him. Like that yeah. is something that unequivocally, I think he would have been like, no, not, not okay. Yes. Great. So this scene, I also have feelings about. One is that there's this big storm and it actually recalls the like nightmare, the recurring nightmare that Matthias kept having in the first duology where Nina's lost in the storm and he's trying to get to her and in his like, dying chapter like his last perspective chapter we can come back to that and i think you know this was a very like obvious choice to kind of make this a moment again to recall a little bit of matthias what i didn't love personally is that hana so suddenly shows up and it is such like an obvious this is the next love interest and it just felt like nina had just gotten a little bit of closure was starting to move on or maybe move on isn't the right word, but embrace the grief and accept, you know, life again. And there's like her new love interest immediately appearing. This is, I mean, this series, this Grishaverse definitely is hardcore about the romance tropes, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone gets paired up. Mm-hmm. And especially with the first person they're in love with. There's definitely something around that in these books. It's Those aren't my favorite tropes. And, you know, here at least we get to see Nina move on. But it is, you know, she really does have to be paired up. And she's traveling with Adric and Leonie, who are also paired up. And, you know, just kind of you have the triumvirate, which is, you know, David and Jenya are together. And then, of course, Zoya and Nikolai, because he's kind of, you know, the fort. Anyway, you know, there's just like all this, and not to mention the Six of Crows crew, right? Everyone's pairing up there. And so it is interesting because this pairing for Nina brings her out, like fully out of those groups. She is no longer paired up, like within the Crows. Her choice to stay with Hana is what's going to keep her from you know, really ever going back to Ravka. Yeah, let's cover that at length later. Mm-hmm. Kat, other feelings about this? I, I remember like live messaging you, I think about this when we were both reading King of Scars as it came out. And I remember you weren't as upset about this. I think you were more upset about the Nina being no fun for like 10 chapters. Yes. Yeah. But I'm curious, Anjali, how did you feel about this scene and like Nina's grief? You know, maybe I'm just oblivious. I did not realize that Hana was going to be the new love interest. So I was just like, who is this random person showing up? And then I on a white kind of... horse or something, like it was like so. I mean, it wasn't white, but it was like the least subtle thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, and somehow I just missed it completely. So that's that's how I took the scene. Speaking of not at all subtle things that I missed completely, when Hannah shows up, he is wearing a man's clothing. Yes, the soldiers. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that is great foreshadowing, Bardugo, yeah. and something that I did not catch the first time around. Yeah, I didn't notice it either. I thought it was supposed to just be like a little bit rebellious tomboy. Yeah. And even rereading it, I felt like most of the signs, like maybe just the obvious signs that Hana was trans really came out in Rule of Wolves, especially when they started entering the like wedding process. So then Nina realizes Hannah is Grisha. And in order to give lessons on being Grisha, gives him lessons on Zemini instead as a cover. I barely remember these scenes, and maybe this isn't relevant now or we talk about it later, but like rereading some of Rule of Wolves, I was surprised by how little banter in terms of like the Nina teasing there is between her and Hana versus her and Matthias. I don't know if either of you two picked up on this, but I was like, oh, where is all this like 
where you know Nina was like really messing with Matthias and making him uncomfortable, like happy, uncomfortable, maybe blushing, but like there's way less of that, it felt like with Hannah. Yeah, they have a very different dynamic. I think that's very noticeable. And I don't know if we're supposed to be giving our like kind of assessments of Nina Hannah's ship yet. We run this this podcast. Yeah, I think it's very easy to fall in love with Nina and Matthias as a couple because they have such great, they both bring kind of like great wit to the page and you just really enjoy hearing them talk to each other and banter and it's very funny. And I feel like the conversations between Nina and Hannah are a lot more kind of restrained. I mean, partially a lot of it is like being done in secret. You know, I think Hannah is coming to terms with themselves and their whole gender identity. Mm-hmm. So it's not as Grisha easy for identity. Them. Yes. It's not as easy for themselves to express themselves. But I don't necessarily like I don't have any feelings towards their relationship, if that makes sense. Like I'm happy if it makes Nina happy, but it's not because I'm like super psyched to see her with Hannah. I feel like I kind of just don't still don't know Hannah as a person that much. And I am really interested if Libra Dugo keeps writing in this series, which I hope she does. I would love to see a Hannah point of view chapter at some point, Mm. because I think there's a lot that's kind of restrained about them that I would love to see what their interior thoughts are. So also, Nina does not know Hannah that well. And this is something that really surprised me. And I think, you know, I think it's a little bit for the narrative suspense, like how we never find out what Kaz's plans are until he does them. (laughs) But, you know, the fact that Hannah became quite a good Grisha at tailoring himself. shockingly good Grisha. Way better than even Genya. Like, an incredible tailor, the best there is. And also just, like, kept all of this stuff from Nina, you know, kept the Grisha thing, kept the kind of gender identity struggle from Nina. I, you know, and then Nina's like, oh, of course I'm still in love with you. But it's, you know, she really did not know Hannah very well. And that's a really big difference there too. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There is one part though where Hannah kind of tries to explain to Nina that they aren't into traditional women stuff and they don't feel themselves dressing up in these fancy clothing partaking in the ball and Nina kind of glosses over it so I think in some ways it's also Nina not getting it and not having those conversations when Hannah like timidly tries to like broach the topics if that makes sense yeah I mean Hannah tells her the only time I've ever really felt beautiful is when you know I was tailored as a, a boy and there's a lot to dig into there that I think Nina, like, doesn't. Do you think it's in character that Nina doesn't dig in? I guess, like, to me, mm-hmm. Nina is both so open and accepting and clearly interested in Hannah and and the sort of person who is just, you know, charming and befriends everyone. You know, I feel like people would just tell her secrets and then that she kind of lets some of that stuff slide by, I guess, surprises me a little bit. Well, I think it's also, you know, I think we, at least in today's society, like we live in a time where like, okay, I know that you know, gender identity, like, isn't black and white. And I know there are people, you know, who are gender fluid, who are trans, like, and I think very clearly in, like, Ravkin society, and certainly in Fearden society, like, maybe it's just not a concept that's known. So my impression is Nina doesn't leap to a conclusion that, like, maybe a reader would leap to, right? Because she just doesn't know what to, like, make of that. And she thinks maybe Hannah just likes a more masculine style and that's fine and doesn't necessarily jump to like an implication that this is something about their identity whereas maybe we as readers are seeing it signaling something else do you find their romance overall convincing or like do you ship it like how do you feel about it well i will say what i said in the group chat um cat when you said should we have a whole episode about this romance like we did with nina and matthias 
And I said, you know, with Nina and Matthias, we had an arc and an ending. And mm-hmm. with Nina and Hannah, we barely have a beginning, right? A lot of the romance is in Nina's head until they sort of suddenly make out. And then, you know, they're, you know, Hannah dies, but he doesn't die. And now he's the <laughs> Prince of Fierda. And now they're going to get married. But, you know, it's really, we don't see that like relationship as it is at the end of the book is like still very developing and very new in a lot of ways. And so I guess I'm holding off on do I ship it until the next book. That's fair. One thing you asked earlier was around, do we think it's believable that Nina didn't, you know, press some of these questions or have some of these conversations? And I think to use, you know, your own words, a lot of it is like a narrative or a plot device so that it could be, you know, this big kind mm-hmm. of final plot twist later on when we think Hannah's dead, spoiler, and they're not. But it, it's hard for me to reconcile with the Nina, at least of the first duology, because Nina cares so deeply about people and she never shies away from hard conversations. And we talked about that in the other episode that, you know, she uses humor, but not to deflect. So, mm-hmm. and there's just so many moments where she and Hannah are alone. You know, they're not always surrounded by Hannah's parents and could have had some of these conversations a little bit more. I don't know. It's hard for me to fully wrap my mind around. But I think no matter what, she if she cares enough about Hannah, she would care if she's seeing Hannah struggle with something and want to talk about it. Like, I can't see Nina not doing that if she saw Inej struggling or unhappy. Yeah, very true. And I think just one more thing about the relationship that I thought was kind of interesting is how long it seems to take Nina to realize that she's fallen for Hana. Like there's so many clues to the reader, like it's so it doesn't feel like it came out of nowhere or anything. But when we're in Nina's perspective chapters, she's like, oh, like I feel jealous. I don't know why. Or like, you know, so weird. And I'm like, what is happening here? This doesn't seem like Nina to me either. What did you two think of that? Yeah, I mean, that's funny. Just when you were describing that, I was like, oh, that's like what Kaz would say to himself. Yeah. I feel jealous, but I'm going to rip this guy's eye out, but I don't know why. (laughs) I I do think you have a point because I think one of the things we've talked about with Nina before is she's so in touch with her desires and she doesn't feel shame about anything, right? And I, I think it's, I really like the kind of representation and I think it makes sense to have Nina as a bi character, but her obliviousness to kind of some of her attraction to Hannah, it is surprising. Mm-hmm. Does she maybe consciously or subconsciously worry that for someone like Hannah, who is who does not have like Matthias's strength of conviction, you know, in like he was all like, what I'm doing is the right thing and what yeah. you know, Hannah doesn't have this like core. Does Nina worry that she is too much, maybe? Kind of in the way that Matthias said, right? Like her banter would be too much for Hannah. You know, her kind of feelings and the whole of herself might be too much. That's a good question. I mean, clearly Hannah worries about that, right? Like Hannah doesn't push these conversations with Nina earlier either. Basically, he just reveals himself as trans when he's like, I'm now Prince Rasmus, but don't call me that, you know? And you're like, (laughs) okay. So I think like, It's interesting that you bring up like, oh, was Nina worried about this? It seems pretty obvious that Hannah must have been. And like, they're like, in all fairness, I think anyone would be. You fall in love with someone and you're like, this is a core part of my identity that you've come to see that I don't perceive myself as would be extremely stressful and scary. Okay, so this next topic. So when Nina is staying at the convent, she and Adric and Leonie find this, what is it, an abandoned factory? Some building that the convent is doing laundry for. And Nina hears anguished cries from the dead people. And it turns out what is happening here is that there are Grisha women and girls who are pregnant or have recently had babies. And they're all being dosed with Jurda Param, and some of the babies die, and some of the Grisha girls and women die. And we don't know why this is happening, other than that Jarl Broom, this is like one of his projects, but this is, I thought this was interesting reading it, because this is so horrific. This is such a horrific thing to find that people are upset about 
but do not seem to like, I guess no one seems as <laughs> shocked and upset. This seems bad to me. Mm-hmm. And the the descriptions about it, I pulled up a quote because I thought it was such an interesting, one of the dead Grisha who was talking to Nina says, quote, like talking to the soldiers, right? You made me conceive again and again. And I was like, that is the most euphemistic way to say that she was repeatedly raped by soldiers, right? I mean, like the euphemism and the like distance that this is all kept, I have to think that is just because it is YA and this is like supremely extremely distressing but i found it really surprising that this that this is happening we never really find out a reason for it happening it is fully dropped in book two and it's just we don't seem to be grappling with this meaningfully yeah i mean i i hate this storyline it's so repulsive to me it's so dark and almost unnecessarily so like they could have had the feared and do something else. They could have had Jarl Broom's experiment be something else. I, you know, I think horrific things have happened in in life and people do all sorts of horrible things. I just, I don't need this much horror in my fiction too, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think, you know, especially we end book one with Nina being determined to like, you know, part of the reason she's getting close to Jarl Broom is to end this. And then it doesn't really come up in her, even in her inner narration in book two. This is certainly not like a preoccupying thought for her. You know, when they, they talk about the well mother, right? The the head of the convent at the beginning of Rule of Wolves. And, you know, Nina is like clearly not that sad that she's dead or, you know, they can't find her or whatever, but she's not really angry enough because the well mother was in on this. And, you know, she should have just wanted every single person in that convent, like, killed. Honestly, that's the amount of rage she should have been feeling. Well, yeah. So I think generally we're probably all on the same page that this didn't feel necessary for the narrative. Maybe especially... I think we're all sensitive to a given current events, like what's happening politically in the U.S. But I, <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if some of it was like, do you think it's possible Lee Bardugo was trying to show how Nina was sort of deadened to things, or is that too much of a stretch? The fact that she didn't respond more like viscerally to this the way that the three of us are. I don't think so. I mean, I actually think Nina is angry, but it's almost like Adric and Leonie aren't as angry as she is. Like they want her to be more cautious. And she has to like really convince people to like get a plan into motion. Yeah. And I think there is one of the exercises I like to, you know, exercise left to the reader. But one of the things that I do a lot when there is a writing decision that I'm like, why on earth would they do this? And then I'm like, well, why on earth would they do this? And I definitely think I was shocked that it was fully dropped in book two. And I could certainly see the intention to not have just dropped it pretty much in book two, going into it initially. And then either Bardugo or other people involved were just like, this is too much. I mean, other than the fact that there is so much going on (laughs) in Rule of Wolves, it is a book where there are a lot of things that happen. But I think just the how serious and how intense this is, I think I could certainly see it having been initially intended to be more of a like thread that was followed through and then just deciding this is too much and too intense and it doesn't work in the book. And honestly, like I'm not, I'm certainly not sad to not have lingered there more in book two, but I was surprised to not see it followed through. And I think, I, I do think what we get is the implication. I mean, the I don't even know that it's an implication. It's a pretty strong statement. like. If Nina and Hannah are going to be in charge of running Fierda in a few years, all, like all this stuff is going to stop and, you know, they'll get on it. They're already getting on it by the end of the book. So we, we get resolution that way, even if less directly. I guess. So I didn't want this in either book. <laughs> I think I agree with you. But it also felt frustrating as a reader, like if you're going to introduce such a like monstrosity to have it not mean something more and just like move on from it so abruptly doesn't feel good to me either. I think that, you know, it didn't need necessarily to be lingered on in book two, but what I would have loved to see is, you know, it takes a lot for 
a child to turn against their parent, right? So Hannah needs like really to kind of betray their father. I would have loved to see that more directly cited as their motivation for their actions. We presume now they're acting against their father, but I think that could have been an interesting exploration to have that was a missed opportunity. Mm. Okay. So, so Nina and Hannah, for some reason, decide that the right thing to do is for Hannah to declare his eligibility for marriage. And what is the reason? It's because Nina has received a mission from Ravka to get closer to the Lansoft pretender and also get Nikolai's mom's letters that Jarl Broom has and is like kind of planning to use as evidence to get Nikolai off the throne. So she tells Hannah this and Hannah is like, okay, I have an idea of how we're going to get closer. That old marriage market. And it's actually like kind of intense because basically if you get a an acceptable proposal, you're not allowed to decline. And there are, you know, conditions for acceptability are like, you know, can provide for Hana, like approved by your old broom, that kind of stuff. When Hana proposes this, it makes me realize just how reckless they are. And I think that should have been obvious. Like when Nina first meets Hana, Hana is dressed in soldiers' clothing, escaping to go on like a fun horse joyride. So this is not like a, you know, totally out of character for Hana, but it did feel like a, oh, once they explain what this process means, what is their end game here? Like, how is Hana planning to get out of this? Yeah. So is this part of why Nina doesn't go farther into these things? Like part of why Mm -hmm. Nina decides to not have these conversations because she's like, well, Hannah's about to get married. So Mm -hmm. what does it matter? Yeah, I think so. And I think at the same time, Nina's also thinking to herself, you know, my goal is this time I'm going to kill Jarl Broom. So how much... You know, can this romance survive me killing their father? So I think there's a lot going on for Nina at this point, but it's still in the midst of what I was describing earlier, where it feels like Nina's like being uncharacteristically obtuse about her feelings. Yeah. And in this kind of marriage market, Hannah is getting what Nina wishes she were getting, which is the like the beautiful dresses and every dress Nina's like, oh, and this is so beautiful. And Hannah's like, eh. And Nina's like, a party. And Hannah's like, you know, there, there's really, we get to see Nina kind of live vicariously through Hannah, even if she's yeah. a fisherwoman's widow off to the side during the whole thing, which is sort of fun, like to see that side of Nina come back out. Yes, totally. And I think this scene also, again, serves to act as a huge like lead up to Hannah's true feelings and gender identity, because I think Nina is supposed to be Hannah's foil. The fact that Hannah is not at all excited, that Hannah's dreading getting dressed up, getting dolled up, going on to this you know, party scene, I think is supposed to be a direct contrast to how Nina feels about it. We've talked a little bit about Nina's powers, her new powers in this duology that kind of developed at the end of the first duology. But one of the big ones is that she starts hearing the voices of dead people at the Spring Maiden convent. She hears those voices unbidden, if I remember correctly. And then by Rule of Wolves, it's when she like, like actually put it, puts out a call that they respond to her. And is that just because she's learned how to control it? Or like, what's that change? like? You would think there would be all sorts of people trying to get her attention and being like, this person's the real murderer, you know, or like, you know, like, you can imagine almost like a comedic version of spirits who are like, have lingering grudges or messages they want to pass on. Nina should be inundated. Maybe the difference is that those first ones were Grisha, and there's more Mm -hmm. of a connection there. Unless, of course, Nina is no longer exactly Grisha by these books, as we sometimes hypothesize. But yeah, that that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like it's a very common trope in TV and films for empaths to get very overwhelmed by the amount of chatter or people they are like trying to communicate with. And you think that might happen to, to Nina because they're just all around us, basically, that we never think about. I think she probably is doing something actively to them to get them to talk is probably the only reason that's not happening. Yeah, I just thought it was an interesting shift from the first book. And maybe some of it is her just like 
you know, she's a trained, gracious soldier already. She should know how to, once she figures out this is a power of hers, maybe that was how she was able to kind of take control of it. I know we like to talk about Grisha, like magic universe system, how it works. I wanted to... There is so much that is going on in this book. We've kind of referenced before, it's like kind of an overwhelming amount of plot lines, but I would have loved like two things from, I guess, the Nina Hana story, which is like both of them learning to use their powers, like Nina learning to embrace and use and hone her post-perem powers, and then also kind of getting more of like updates or at least mentions of how Hana becomes such an amazing tailor because it's just kind of mentioned like out of the blue and it I just plot wise it always makes me really like uncomfortable like I I feel like it's almost like a showing and not telling how Hana is kind of um, this tailor that's like even better than Jenya without like necessarily having the foundation laid for that like I think if there are mention like of Hana being really driven and like practicing every day and kind of being obsessed with learning their powers like that would have felt more real and like a it would have made the payoff feel more earned. Yeah, so let's get into these tailoring powers. Well, also, sorry, I'm just going to one more thing to add to that, Anjali. They don't even have an amplifier, and mm-hmm. they're able to tailor themselves that well that quickly. It just, like, blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, we don't see any evidence that Hana had started doing tailoring until a few months before... He, like, split second tailors both the dead prince and himself, right? We see little twinges of it. Like, at some point, he's like, hey, look, I could actually make my hair grow faster. But I'm talking about the, like, before Hannah meets Nina. There's no evidence that he had done any tailoring, No. right? Like Not that I can that, And we're talking about, like, from that point to kind of be that you know, the air quotes, Hannah's death, is not more than a few months. Yeah. I would say a year tops of tops yeah. from when he and Nina meet. We're really talking about speed learning to do mm-hmm. the best work at speed with less material, right? And training. And, like, yeah, Nina's no, no tra- expert trainer. Is not an expert tailor herself. Yeah, and let's, can I also just mention that these changes are permanent? which is something that's like very unusual and hard and Nina really only managed to do when she did it because she was on Yurda Prem, but Hana like can magically like appear as the prince forever and like that the dead body of the prince is like not changing at all. Hana can keep updating himself and at least the prince can probably get buried quickly. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean about like, I feel like this payoff is not earned. And Mm -hmm. I I don't think that the author really had to like spoil the ending by mentioning tailoring a ton. But I feel like there's a missed opportunity for it to be mentioned to be kind of part of Hannah's drive and character early on. It really becomes a deus ex machina. Okay, so that's funny you say that because I was going to say that's how I personally felt about Nina's new power of hearing dead people's voices. That it felt like it would drive the plot forward and at times when Nina couldn't have otherwise figured things out or done what she needed to do. What did you think of her new power, specifically the one to hear the voices of spirits or people who've passed on? You know, I I think I was more receptive to it than you, Kat, because I do feel I like exploration of the rules of magic and the magic universe. I'm really nerdy that way. I love learning more about magic systems. I like the idea of Yurda Perem being a corruption of Grisha powers and exploring what that corruption means and how that plays out. So for me, you know, Nina not being able to affect life and now having effects on dead matter, dead people, like that's really interesting to me. And I would like to learn more personally. Was it? Yeah, I mean, that's the question is, was it explored or was it just thrown out there? Because I also think this is interesting about, you know, there is a lot of religion in this duology and presumably being able to talk to dead people has a lot of implications for all those religions. And we just slide right by. Yep, I love it. (laughs) Maybe that's why the apparat was really kidnapping Nina. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I have to pull back 
to what we were saying about Hannah's tailoring because now that I said it earlier, I can't stop thinking about it. But Jarl Broom knows more about the heritability of Grisha power than we do. And his mm. child is a bonkers powerful Grisha. Like, oh t- let's take this at face value that he, with very little training, is the most powerful tailor in all of the world that we're aware of. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Jarl, like, what does Jarl have going on? And like, is like do we think y'all broom is grisha like i was listening i was like okay i see where you're going i actually thought maybe as a result of y'all broom's experiments or like you know hanging around near to prim i don't know if the timeline works at all like maybe something he did or the effects of doing these things led to him having a grisha child without him realizing it well like yeah. like the amplify like the morosova amplifiers like yeah. getting into like his, the darkling some like dealing with that weird dark shit and then it comes out in your kids yeah is Merzos basically just like another form of karma <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what Yarbroom was doing was like Merzos to the nth power. It was extremely, extremely, extremely Merzos. Who cares if the Darkling is like, you know, whatever he was doing, nothing was as bad as what Yarbroom was doing. I mean, I do just want to say that, you know, according to my theories, similar to what Yarlbroom was doing, the Darkling did try to sacrifice an entire town of people to convert them into amplifiers to be murdered but (laughs) i really like that theory angeli i think what i had always sort of in the back of my head believed is that that hana's grisha lineage came through his mother because there was such a big deal about his mother's heritage coming from the north this like the hair jute people powerful exactly literally in the name of the book right rule of wolf totally Totally, yeah. I mean, I think his mother is also a really interesting character that doesn't get enough screen time, if you will, page time. But definitely, I like these other, like, Mirzos, you know, backfiring theories. Like, it's a, like, probably the biggest punishment your old room could ever have, you know, that sort of thing. But I do think it's possible that's the reason why his mother lineage is you know mentioned every now and then because otherwise it didn't make a lot of sense to me why that came up so much i actually assumed that the reason it came up so much was so that we remembered that hannah's really tall and thus (laughs) can tailor himself you know i do think one of the things about hannah's mom when she comes in and sees hannah and nina make it out and the way she relates to it I found fully heartbreaking in sort of this way where it's like, this is a woman who had other things going on. Like she knows what it's like to have these secrets. She knows what it's like to want something that is not approved of. And she like, she's kind of there for it in a way. I guess it felt like it, where she previously didn't seem like that much of a character really. And then I was suddenly like, well, you know what? What is going on? What happened? What is happening in her head? You know, all these years of marriage. And I think what was interesting about that scene and how she treats Nina afterwards is she basically just treats her as like, it doesn't matter your gender. The fact that I brought you into my home and you were sneaking around with my child in my house behind my back, I think is probably a reaction many parents would have, again, regardless of genders, right? It just feels like a little bit of betrayal. And I thought that that was nice that, and of course, you know, by the end, I think she's kind of more accepting. And like you said, it's like this really difficult situation, clearly, like she wants Hannah to be happy. And I think you can always see that, that even, you know, when Hannah's like, I want to enter this like marriage ring process, mom is like, you don't have to do that unless you want to. You can always go back north to my people. Yeah. Which again, I'm like, I, I think it's tough because you just don't know what's going on in her head. Like, does she realize your old room is constantly hitting on Nina? Is she choosing to ignore it? Like, what is happening? And you never really get that payoff. And you, so I'm like, I think it would be super hard to be a mother who cares so much about your child and not realize that they're Grisha. So I'm like, does his mother know? Is this part of the reason why she's been trying to send Hana north? I think also just thinking about like what Hana offers to enter the marriage market. Mom is like, are you sure? 
Like you really don't have to do. No, I'm serious. You do not have to do this. Like, which is, I think, not what I would have expected a typical mom in feared in society reaction to be. So maybe there are things about their gender or their sexuality that they suspect already. So then the real conspiracy theory here is that both of Hannah's parents are secret Grisha. What do you think Nina and Hannah would do with that information if they knew he was Grisha? Blackmail him? So Nina, yes, definitely would blackmail him, would sort of prem him. Like, you know, I'm like, what wouldn't she do? I think is the real question. <laughs> I think what she wouldn't kill tougher. him. I don't think she'd kill him. I think she really wants to, but she like keeps holding herself back first for Matthias, then maybe because of Hannah. Like, it's like shocking to me because he's clearly like a complete sociopath. So I'm like, why are we keeping this, you know, guy alive? It's unclear. The way he reacted to Hannah's death. Yeah. Like that is a sociopath, you know, like through and through, right? And I don't know why we're keeping him around. I think it would be much harder for Hannah to make use of this information though. Hannah is just like very still like pure and good. And like when Hannah reacts in self-defense and, you know, in doing so kills Rasmus, they're clearly struggling with this. It is not like a black and white decision to them specifically. So I'm like, what would they do with this info? So is this like the best propaganda piece they could have gotten? Like, I feel like they can use it like strategically. They can have like GL has blessed Jarl Broom with new powers or, you know, definitely feel like they could play it into propaganda if they wanted. I don't know how Jarl would work with that. <laughs> like, and if they really want to train him so that he can use his powers no. effectively, I guess, yeah, I don't know if that's a good idea or a worse idea. Um, I think they turn him into a saint, like Apparat style, like better off dead and revered, you know what I mean? Better martyr than a saint. Exactly. Like living saint, dangerous and uncontrollable, especially when they're a sociopath. <laughs> okay, so like, what if like Jarl Brum met Elisabetta? Like, how does that conversation go? <laughs> They'd be perfect for each other. <laughs> it was less of a romantic okay. do you ship it. I was going to ask, if your room is Grisha, what like order of Grisha would you see him as? Ooh, maybe a tide maker. Because I associate Kirita <laughs> so much with water. I was going to say Corporalki for sure. Just like yeah, the that. control over other people. And like the political games seems very corporate to me. What is, what do you think is the like, maybe this doesn't exist, but is there a foil to like Zoya's Grisha powers? Because like, I feel like that's the other thing is like this, the whole Grishaverse loves to set up like there is like a, everything has an equal, right? Mm -hmm. And the heart of the making of the world keeps things like balanced in the force, if you will. So Zoya should have a, balancing like parallel counterpart too right well would her her opposite be like someone that stops things moving yeah i'm like i'm, I'm like what's the opposite of a dragon a unicorn like, <laughs> like i don't know like a fire swallower like like what is it that a dragon can do and how do you negate it? oh he's the person that whose mind she can't read you know, like when uh, she's suddenly able to like see everything, but like, like your old room is like black hole. <laughs> I knew you'd appreciate that. Oh, Wait, like, oh my god! Like Bella Swan. Oh. I'm sorry. Are you two ready for some lightning round? Sure. So, lightning round questions that are never as lightning as we think they'll be. So, what do we think about this duology as a continuation of Nina's story? So, I'm I'm conflicted because I always like seeing Nina reading more of her point of view and I appreciate that you know she couldn't be with Matthias she you know gets to find a relationship that heals her in a way and allows her to move on and also you know allows her to continue fighting for Ravka in a way that like I think only Nina's talents could really work in this situation. She has so many gifts and she's using them really well. On the other hand, I think it's really painful for me to see someone as vibrant and joyous and unapologetic as Nina, essentially trapped forever in the body of Mila Yandersat and forced to stay in Fierda and never return to Ravka. It's just such a life of repression and it's, you know, she has Hana, but 
most of the other things she loves in life she's going to be cut off from and that seems really sad to me yeah i struggle with it too one because nina loves like rodka and rodkin food and there's a mention how there's no waffles in Fira. <laughs> hannah has never tried one doesn't know what they are and i'm like nina how can you be happy here for the rest of your life <laughs> but i think that a little bit of it is also when she meets the new well mother who's a grisha undercover and turns out she's been undercover for 13 years Nina's pretty surprised and finds it like unfathomable is I think the word that they use, which clearly is again, like, you know, a bit of foreshadowing for, you know, what Nina decides herself later. But I'm like, I, it's hard for me because Nina's so like happy and full of life. And this like Mila character is, you know, hand wringing, you know, boring, whatever. But she says, you know, like, I'm going to change now. Like, you know, like this Mila is about to evolve. But I also wonder, you know, like there's this like great quote. And I think we've maybe talked about it before. The one where Hannah says, I've never seen your real face. Do you miss it? And Nina says, I'm beginning to forget what I look like. But trust me, I was gorgeous. And it speaks back to that confidence we were talking about in the Nina part one episode. And it makes me wonder, like, does she miss how she looked? Or is she just so confident and comfortable to herself? It doesn't matter like what her physical body is like. Cause I think that like, uh, otherwise I'm like, whoa, this seems really hard. If you like loved the body you were born in and you like mm -hmm. were so confident and happy in it to give that up forever is, that's not a small ask. Not at all, not at all. I definitely agree with, with both of you on the ending here. And like, I mean, I think this continuation, I definitely, you know, by the end of this, as I think we've mentioned, God, there's just so much going on in these books. Definitely feel like mm. this could have just been Nina's duology, or at least Nina's standalone book, where we like know what's going on here. And I have questions about how this whole thing is going to work, you know, with Nina and Hannah going forward, and definitely how they're going to retain the cover of Mila, who is a real person. And presumably, if she <laughs> marries the Prince of Fierda, her cover is not going to work so well anymore. But you know, I will look forward to Nina's standalone book where they answer all of my remaining <laughs> questions, presumably. All right. Kiss, Mary kill time. It's not a good week. It's not a good week for your picks. Uh -oh. Your picks this week are Jarl Broom, <laughs> Rasmus, the OG, not oh, no. in disguise, and Apra. Oh, cat. What are you doing? That's disgusting. <laughs> what am I doing to you, Tess? Okay. I'm forced to just kill the apparat right off because of his dental hygiene. <laughs> I'm sorry. I will not be kissing or marrying him. Okay, that leaves you with a, that leaves me with Erasmus and that. Oh God, guess I'll kiss Jarl Broom and marry Rasmus in the hopes that Fierda has an analog to the Lansoff Emerald. Yeah. There, I'm done. I will do the same, but I will kill the apparat. I will kiss your broom and stab him while I'm close enough to kiss him. You can't kill that many. I will marry die. Rasmus and yeah. kill him in his sleep. So okay. there I have like solved the problem. It's not kill, kill, kill. <laughs> and yet now it is. You don't give three villains unless they're the Darkling. <laughs> you don't give three irredeemable villains. I mean, that's mm. like, you know, they don't have any plus sides, you know? Yeah, that's they don't true. have like cheekbones like Clayton famously does. I'm gonna kill Jarl Broom right off the bat. He's just too evil and mastermindy for me to keep alive. He's he's gone. I think mm, this is provocative or maybe contentious. I think I'm going to kiss Rasmus. I don't really know like why specific i think i wouldn't marry him because that streak of cruelty is real scary but he's also pretty sickly so maybe i could use that to my advantage and just like slowly keep him poisoned and weakened over time so i guess at this point i'm still marrying the apparatus i haven't decided what to do with rasmus i just like don't love him as a character, but I think we can have our separate little parallel lives and stay away from each other. You know, maybe he'll be at the church all the time. This is actually very appropriate because I always think of the apparat as the Grisha versus Mr. Collins. And <laughs> Charlotte marries Mr. Collins, right? Yeah. And so yeah. Charlotte, you know, she's she finds herself quite content with, with her chance. You know. She manages him. Yeah. So like Rasmus is a better decision too, like because he's more manageable. I don't know. Anyways. 
Yapra and I, please come to our wedding. Consider this your invitation. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of weddings, Anjali, could you design for us the wedding cake or cakes plural that would be at the at least 2,000 person wedding of the widowed fisherwoman and the prince of Fierda? Yes, yes, I can. All right, so Mila Yanderslat and Prince Rasmus will have a 10-tiered cake. Now, I don't know if you've thought a lot about different types of gingerbread, maybe only me, but it does come in a couple of varieties. And so the exterior of this cake will be paneled with gingerbread cookies, which are going to be decorated in elaborate royal icing designs. The look will be like a giant gingerbread house, very kind of Fierda, snowy climb appropriate. And you know, the gingerbread cookies, they're kind of hard, they're kind of dry. Royal icing is, it's both sweet and dry and hard at the same time. And it seems like the type of masochistic dessert that Fjordans would enjoy. Now, the interior of the cake is going to be a different type of gingerbread, you know, the kind of like moist, lush, spiced gingerbread. And to me, that kind of represents Nina putting on this very bland, boring exterior, but having this rich, luscious, exciting inner life. And so I just feel like that's a very appropriate cake for this couple that's pulling a giant con on the nation of Fierda, getting them to enjoy themselves against their will. And gingerbread goes so well with raisins you've set on fire. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes, it does. I love this. I love this. So tell me about what you two have been reading. What do you recommend? All right. Well, what I do recommend is Gideon the Ninth because the third book in the No Longer trilogy, we all thought it was going to be a trilogy and the third book was going to come out next month and we were all excited, but then it turns out it's four books. And so Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth are out and Nona the Ninth, potentially pronounced Nana the Ninth, I have no idea, is coming out is coming out soon. And I am so excited for this series. The cover of Gideon the Ninth, I believe, said the most fun you'll ever have with a skeleton and totally was. It's like lesbian necromancers in outer space with a Mm -hmm. lot of swords and I would classify it somewhere between science fiction and fantasy for reasons that become more clear in book two. I have read both books twice. I think they are super brilliant. They're really fun. They're even better on rereads. Unreliable narrators are my I love unreliable narrators. I will say, you know, check the content warnings. There's a lot of body horror. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're Bardugo fans, maybe that's fine, but this course. is way more even. You know, they're necromancers. It's a lot of weird body magic. So love it. So excited for book three. Cannot wait. So the book that I have to recommend this week is one that I just recently finished, and it's science fiction, time travel called The Future of Another Timeline. It's told from two perspectives, and the main protagonist is focused on human rights and preserving them and thwarting this group of like incel-like people in the future trying to take control of what they call the timeline. And she's also trying to fix her own past at the same time. So I think it's like, you know, you have a little bit of both good things going on. And I also really enjoy that they call it Edit Wars. It makes me think of Wikipedia. And I'm wondering how much the author was inspired by like that term too. But yeah, it's this idea of like how, if you could rewrite parts of the past to affect the present and the future, what would you do? How would it, you know, happen? I really enjoyed it. And I think many of these readers, and I'm looking at you a lot right now, JJ, would too. Well, that's it for this installment. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any feedback, thoughts, ideas for us, feel free to drop us a line at crowclubpod at gmail.com. 